This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. On the show, you'll hear from leading Australian business owners as they share the lessons they've learned building their companies. You'll learn from their successes, as well as some of the challenges they've faced along the way. We also talk to experts from a range of fields who share specialised techniques you can use to improve your business. I'm your host, Savan Tuna, and I'm a director at Alexander Spencer, and I'm really passionate about helping Australian businesses succeed. Today, we are speaking to Emily Wallace, owner of Emily Wallace Buyers Advocate, the buying coach, EW Education, and the co-host of My Millennial Property Podcast. In today's episode, we will be discussing the world of a buyer's agent and how Emily grew her business through social media. You'll learn how she risked it all to start her business, what the role of a buyer's advocate actually is, and her top tips for entering the property market. Let's jump in. Hello, Emily. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on today. I've been following your journey, so really excited about today. Thank you so much for having me on. Tell me a little bit about your business, Emily Wallace, Buyer's Advocate. The business is a buyer's advocacy. What that means is we buy homes for people. I particularly focus on first and family home buyers. It's not really a job, really. It's quite fun (laughs) looking through properties and basically being a property matchmaker between houses and people. So in a nutshell, that's what I do. It's an industry that's quite big overseas and it's growing here in Australia. I know in the US, I've got some family there and most of them wouldn't buy their own property on their own. They'd use as an advocate. How have you seen the growth of the buyer advocacy industry in Australia since you've been involved? So I guess as a reference point, advocates are kind of where mortgage brokers were about 15 years ago. The mortgage broker was not really the norm. And now you look at mortgage brokers and about 60% of loans are done through a broker. So the same trajectory is happening in the advocate space. There's probably less than 5% of people currently who would buy their home in Australia through an advocate, but we suspect that to rapidly change over the next 10 to 15 years. And you said you loved it. You obviously enjoyed it. It's not a job for you. What made you get into buyer advocacy? What made you do the jump? Well, specifically, I noticed a real gap in the market for first home buyers. And a lot of people, their reference point of an advocate is actually The Block, the TV show, The Block. That's kind of their only reference point. And on that show, the properties are all selling for millions of dollars. So the impression is, if I have an advocate, I need to have a lot of money, which is actually not true. So when I entered the space, I basically looked at the market that was similar to myself, similar age and demographic, people getting in for the first time not being taught this stuff at school and really needing someone who could break it down for them in plain English and not be taken for a ride by real estate agents. So as silly as it now sounds looking back, I effectively quit my corporate job with not very much money left (laughs) to leverage. I had about three months worth of living expenses covered, which in hindsight, I probably should have allowed for some more, but I was optimistic. And I quit my corporate job in recruitment and I started the advocacy from scratch back in September of 2018. Did you ever consider doing the other part with a selling part or was it always buyer advocacy was your passion? 
It's funny. As soon as I got into the advocate world, so many sales agents asked me like, why don't you come on the selling side? Come and join us. There's a job for you here. I got probably six job offers in the first two months of having my own business. And I was like, uh, there's a reason I picked the buying side. And to be honest with you, when people think of a real estate agent, they actually already have an impression of what that person might look like. And whether that be good or bad, it's already established. Whereas when people think of an advocate, outside of knowing the advocates on the block, most people don't really have a persona or understand what an advocate might be. And I wanted to help shape that. So that's kind of why I picked that side. And to be honest, it's a lot more enjoyable on the buying side than trying to sell stuff to people. I imagine you get lots more thank yous for helping someone to buy the property than an agent selling the property. I think the seller always thinks that they could probably get a little bit more money for their house. And, and maybe the thank yous aren't, the high fives aren't as highly given out in the selling side. So we met a few years back and you launched your business in 2018 and you've won many awards and have grown your business at rapid rates. And here at the bottom line, we love talking to small business owners and understanding that journey and the challenges that they've faced. But what do you attribute the success of your growth? What was that one thing that you did early on with your business that helped you grow? The biggest thing is I looked at what I could do for free. So what wouldn't actually cost me money that actually only required my time and effort? And a lot of that was social media content. I think people underestimate how much social media content can grow a business I think more generally as a society, we want instant gratification. So we're like, we'll put something up, you know, a week later that we'll have more clients come on board. I started seeing the rewards of social media posting a couple of the nibbles here and there early days, but it probably took a solid year of posting good content, valuable content before I started to rely on social media as a way to actually have clients on board. Yeah, and I like what you said. It is a long game and sticking it out in that social media content space is critical. Did you have a business plan in mind when you started the business or, and I hate to say this, did you just wing it? Well, I really just had a go and I was <laughs> winging it, to be honest. I'm still winging it most of the time, although now I actually have forecasts and I've got data to show me where I should be going. But I honestly had no idea what to expect. And in some respects, that's actually a good thing because... I wasn't disappointed and I wasn't limited at the same time. So because I had no idea in terms of revenue and projections like that, I just went for it basically. And can you tell me a little bit about the social media content part? I watch you on LinkedIn. You do a lot of awesome video content. And how did that evolve over its journey? Did you have a lot of effort in the content writing or did you get feedback from clients? How did that evolve to become something so powerful is in your arsenary? For marketing? Yeah, I guess the biggest thing that people struggle with is thinking of more content, right? That's probably the biggest hurdle. It's like, oh, what do I post next? What I realized very early on and why I was able to continue, and it's now, you know, quite a successful part of the business, is I assumed that everybody knew nothing about what I did. So I always put out content that was very basic and very easy to understand. And also, I think that people often forget is you can put something up once, you can do a version of that six months later down the track, like not necessarily recycling the exact same thing, but people don't remember what you posted six months ago. People probably don't really care what you posted six months ago. <laughs> so the snowball effect of content started to position me as an expert in the area. That doesn't mean I am the best expert in the area 
as a buyer's advocate, it just means I was the most frequent and recent person that people kept seeing. And that started to evolve in people contacting me for recommendations in other areas and grew the business quite rapidly. But it was a pretty hard slog for the first six months, but then it went quite smoothly. Fantastic. And what's the biggest challenge you face as a small business owner at the moment? It's growth in a bit of a different way. I think the biggest thing is I really want to be able to transition into coaching other advocates how to do this job because there's not a lot of content out there on how to be a good advocate. The biggest challenge I would face in the interim is trying to balance my everyday with my advocate hat on versus my training hat, which are two very different roles. And I think the bottom line of that comes down to time management and priority as anything you know usually does. But that's probably the biggest challenge is trying to be in the business and work on the business, which I know many business owners are nodding their head saying, yep, that's that's what we do too. <laughs> and what advice would you give to business owners that want to generate really fast-paced growth? You use really good content, but are there other tips that you have or is it really that social media video content or even other content other than video that you've leveraged that you've seen some traction and what advice would you have for them? There's a couple of content streams that can really help. I mean, a podcast, kind of ironically that we're on a podcast, but <laughs> the podcast that I'm part of, I was very lucky that I was asked to be part of it once it had already grown to a certain point. And that certainly elevated my business. It probably accounts for probably 40% of inquiries now from the podcast. Then obviously you've got LinkedIn, you've got Instagram. I think what a lot of service-based businesses fail to recognize is that you can still use marketing such as influencer marketing, even when you have a service. I think a lot of people are fixated on a physical product being present to sell something, but I've leveraged influencer marketing. So what I mean by that is picking someone who has an influence and a following. It doesn't have to be someone with a hundred thousand followers. It can literally be someone with maybe even four or 5,000 followers on Instagram And I've asked them if they could talk about what I do to their audience. And I've paid them to do that. It's a form of paid marketing. And what is happening is a lot of people are now consuming advertising through Instagram, particularly the millennials. They're, you know, really getting informed about all different things for people they follow. And the moment I sort of realized that, then I was like, right, that's where I need to be channeling because they're not really watching TV advertising. They're not really listening to the radio anymore. So where are they actually consuming? And that's where you've got to be is where your client is consuming content. I love that advice. I'm a, as you know, a professional services provider, not selling that tangible product. And we've never really thought of influencer marketing as a strategy in our practice at this stage. We do testimonials from our clients and stuff, but they may not even have presence on social media or whatnot. However, You've really given me an idea there where you could collaborate with like-minded business owners that may not be in accounting and finance, but have a large following where it might be a business coach, for instance, or whatnot. Really good idea and really good advice there. And yeah, very outside the box thinking. As I was writing my notes during preparations for your podcast episode, I was reflecting back on some of the content you did early days and I thought, you actually beat the punch on some of the stuff I see on TikTok. There's a lot of business owners that spend a minute and a half on this awesome content and give away three or four tips, as you would call them, and 
I'm like, geez, Emily was doing that two years ago. And <laughs> and it is quite good to watch you do that and, and I've seen that grow. So really good advice around that stuff. And what about in terms of going back to your buyer advocacy business? You must be now getting to a stage where you've got lots of inquiries. Do you have now an ideal client, which you've specified earlier, that you only work with? What are the challenges around lots of inquiries and trying to be there for everyone? Yeah, I think that is the thing, right, is to realise that I can't be there for everyone, as, as hard as that is. We do filter a lot because I guess it's only something you learn with experience and red flags to look out for, you know, people who aren't quite ready, people who don't have expectations that are aligned with the market. I had a call just on Saturday, a Zoom meeting. It was intended to be a sign up with what I thought was my ideal customer, a young couple, first home, million dollar mark in Southeast Melbourne. Their perception of the market was just not, they just didn't have a clue. They, they told me the market was going backwards and I was like, oh, not sure what market you're looking at. <laughs> so it's really hard. And they said, we actually need some time to process this because you've just told us our budget doesn't buy what we want. And that's really hard for us to hear. And I said, yes, but I would rather tell you now and manage expectations than take you as a client. So I'm very big and actually try and feel empowered when we say no, because it's not the right thing to take someone who isn't your right client or in the right space to buy. But really our ideal client and the clients we attract the most are couples who are in sort of the phase of buying their first house. General age would be 20s to mid-30s. A funny requirement or not a requirement, but a funny attribute of them is most of them have a dog or are intending on getting a dog and they want a two bedroom, one bathroom with a garden space of some sort for the dog. That's generally our entry level clients. And then our family home buyers are more sort of, you know, two to 2.5 Bayside, four bedroom family homes. Look, in my experience, I haven't had too many experiences with buyer advocates. I've never used one myself. Can you talk about the pricing that you charge? You said that the perception was that it was expensive. What's the charges and how do you provide your services? Yeah, sure. So I guess a lot of the advocate models are based off sales agents. So for context, a sales agent charges a percentage of the end result of that sale. And it's usually somewhere between 1.5 to 2.5%, depending on where your property is. And because a lot of the early advocates were actually originally sales agents, they had the same model. The issue with that is part of our job is to save you money, not have you spend more money. So we shouldn't actually be rewarded based off what you spend. So I looked at that and although I was sort of taught, oh, 2% is your industry standard. So on a million dollar house, that's $20,000. We sort of turned that on its head and said, look, we're going to operate on a fixed fee A, so the client knows what they're being charged from the get-go and can budget for it. But B, I don't want to be not enticed, but geared towards one profile over another based off their price point. Everyone should be treated the same. So we have a model where we have a retainer fee and a success fee. So we're retained at the beginning for our services and then we're paid upon a successful transaction. The fees do vary based on the scope of work, but generally speaking, our engagement fees are around 5,000 and our successes are around 10. This is about 15,000 worth of fees. Most people spend upwards of 600,000 with us, but a lot sort of around that mill to 1.5 mark. So it's not like it's one of those things where 
it's so expensive. I mean, at the end of the day, if you've actually bought them the house and you got a good price and they've act transacted, that's when they pay. So I guess at the end of the day, the only thing they're parting away with is the first amount. And I do like that. So it is good. And do you find it difficult to sometimes articulate the value? Do people come and say, why do I need you? I can go to open for inspections and do the offers and all that kind of stuff. How have you gone in articulating your value? So the biggest thing I do in that situation, and to be honest, it's happening less and less because I think people now know how much they need us. But one question I used to ask them is, okay, so in the last three weeks, how many off-market properties have you been handed by an agent? And most of the time they go silent or they go, well, I haven't because you know I don't know any agents or they get a bit defensive. But that articulates a point that 75% of what we have purchased in 2021 has actually been an off-market property. And for the remaining 25% who bought an on-market property, they all were exposed to off-markets during the course of working together. So our biggest benefit is that we get properties that general public don't get access to. And when it's high buyer competition, your biggest value is knocking out as many buyers as you can before they've even gotten to the point of sale. So that's really where we sort of articulate our value is it's a full-time job to speak to agents, get access to properties and negotiate deals. And that to many people is worth well beyond our fee. Yeah. And I think I want to add one to that as well. I think the fact that you speak to real estate agents regularly means that you know their strengths, weaknesses, if they're playing a game or not. You've been doing this with them for so long. When I come along and buy one property in my lifetime and I have to negotiate, it is a scary thought. But we are recording this episode during a period of, you know, a bit of uncertainty, Melbourne lockdowns, uh, which is preventing open for inspections and not. And buying a home is probably becoming really hard and harder than ever. So in the next section, I want to sort of pick your brain on some of your top tips for our listeners that are looking at purchasing a home and just dive deep into the key values that you provide your clients. So the first question I have is, what is the process you go through in helping clients define what is the correct property for them? Yeah, great question. It's a really interesting one because it varies so much across clients. But the thing that really comes to the forefront is establishing what is more important to them because it comes down to two things. It's either location or accommodation. Every single time you work with a client, it becomes very apparent whether they will take potentially a house that might not look as good in a great spot versus an amazing looking house they don't need to do anything to, but it's not in their ideal spot. We do a lot of work on that in the beginning, trying to work out which way they're going to sway because that will influence where we start sourcing. And I guess second to that is, is that actually achievable? What you're looking for, does it exist? A tip I would give to buyers who are looking in the market right now is to go through real estate or domain and check the last three months of sales and find at least three properties in your price range that have sold that look of like you might have purchased them or they're of interest to you, that indicates that they do exist. If there's nothing there, it either means A, your budget's way off or B, it's a very rare stock type you're looking for and it might only come up once every six months. What are the things you look for when you're at an open for inspection? Is there a routine you follow? Because open for inspections, I've been to a few... You know, there's sometimes there could be so many people, it's a bit of a chaos. Do you have a technique in, in how to navigate through the for open for inspection? The biggest thing that I'm looking for is trying to 
take away the emotion from the buyers and see what they're not seeing. So a lot of that is not necessarily routine I go through, but because I've been through literally thousands of properties, things stick out to me quite quickly. So for example, does the house smell moldy or does is there sufficient ventilation? You can usually sort of tell, particularly in bathrooms and laundries and things like that, when it might be poor. What's the condition of the floors? Does the property need re-stumping? Are they elastic when I jump on them or are my heels sounding like they're going straight through the floor? I think the biggest thing that I always look for and that everyone should look for in a property is the orientation of the property because orientation is something you cannot change. The location of the property is what it is. And most people would know that a north-facing property, so like your living space in the northern part, will get all day sun, um, but a south-facing rear will be very dark during the day. So that's probably like the number one thing I'm looking for is where is the sun? I usually get out my little compass app on my phone and cross-check it because sometimes the floor plans do lie as to the compass orientation. So, oh yeah, I'm looking for aspect. I'm looking for what can't I change about this property that is not a good thing. Okay. And during those open for inspections, obviously the selling agent's usually there. Do you utilise that opportunity for a buyer? Should they talk to the agent? Are there any questions they should ask and get some insight directly from the selling agent? And do you have any advice around that? Yeah, definitely. Someone asked me a similar question on the live I did the other day. And it's something that I can't believe I've made a video about before because I was saying so many people ask the agent why the vendor is selling. And to be honest, it's actually irrelevant why the vendor is selling. It doesn't make any difference to your price or what they're going to sell for. What you should be asking is what does the vendor want or does the vendor need a certain settlement timeframe or a certain condition that would be attractive to them? That's actually what the most important question is. So yeah, looking at what the vendor needs to make that offer look as attractive as possible would be my main focus of a conversation with an agent. I just want to know, tell me what it is. Agents aren't going to tell you everything that's wrong with the property. Put it that way. You go do your own due diligence. And you're perfectly leading into my next question. Is there a correct way to make an offer for a purchase? And do you have your do's and don'ts in making an offer? So every agency goes about offers differently. Some agencies will require you to have a written offer on a contract of sale. Some of them will collate them via email. It should be really a lot more streamlined. Technically speaking, it's not an offer unless it's signed, but some people have their own little forms that they get you to fill out. The correct way to place an offer is technically to get a contract of sale and have that reviewed and to put your price, your terms and your settlement with your signature on it to present to the vendor. Now, when the agent receives an offer, unless you have articulated otherwise, an offer is valid for three days. That is the standard in Victoria. So my suggestion would always be put forward an offer with a deadline. So it doesn't have to be three days. Three days is a long time to wait for an outcome on an offer. We usually put 24 hours or 36 hours. So in your email with your offer, put that this offer will expire at X time. And the biggest thing with it is to make sure that offer is presented to the vendor. Legally, the agent has to take it to the vendor. You need to make sure it's been presented and get feedback from the agent as to what the vendor thinks of your offer. Okay. The next part I want to talk about is auctions. We love watching them on TV. They're fun at a charity function and a lot of properties, and I'd love to get the stat off you, Emily. I see that a lot more auctions are utilized in Australia 
and they're the scariest things when you have to bid at them yourself. Is there a strategy or tip that you have for clients that are bidding at their auction for their property? Yeah, I think a lot of people tend to stand in the crowd at an auction. I'm not sure why, maybe it's just a done thing. They haven't seen it any other way, but for an auction, your position, like your physical position is really important. So as an advocate, nine times out of 10, an advocate will stand at the front next to the auctioneer. And the reason they do that is A, so they're very close to the auctioneer. If they want to call in a late bid, they can be heard easily. And number two is so they can actually look out and see their competition and intimidate them. So when you're bidding at an auction, don't stand behind a tree and be like, you know, the random person who sticks their hand up at the end and a mystery bidder. That's probably not the best way to bid. (laughs) I would personally stand at the front of the auction and look out and be really strong in your bidding, like vocally strong to raise your hand to place a bid. Some people have this strategy where they go in hard, early, fast, strong bids. And then I hear clients and friends say, oh, no, no, you just wait till the end and you knock them out at the end. Are there actually even strategies that work or do you just go in, have a budget in mind and bid strong? If I'm honest, I feel it out on the day. I really do feel it out because every auction is different and every auctioneer is different too. Some of them will call it down three times, like, you know, they go once, twice, third time, they'll do that repeatedly. So they're not being serious when they say, I'm going to call it down. And I know the ones who do that. Then there's ones who are, they're not messing around. They're calling that thing down three times and you've got to get in. So I think the biggest thing to understand is obviously each state is different, but certainly in Victoria, if the property doesn't reach its reserve price, it is passed in. It needs to pass in to you if you want to exclusively be able to negotiate with the vendor. So in that situation, there's no point holding back. You need to make sure your hand is up to go inside with the agent and negotiate the deal. And is there anything you mentioned don't to stand back and hide behind the tree? Is there another thing that you have for people not to do? Don't make decisions in the auction. Like so many couples go to an auction and they get emotionally invested And they start seeing it, you know, slip away from them and think, oh, just what if $1,000 more might get it? Or that person looks like they're running out. What if we just up our limit by 10K? Don't make that decision in the moment. You need to make these decisions before you enter the auction itself. So the morning of, or even the night before, our clients have to give us their limit the night before written and signed. So it is final. You have to have a walk away price. And look, this is why auctions always get such good results because they know people get emotional and they play on those emotions and people keep putting their hands up. So don't get sucked into that. You need to have a walkaway price and commit to it, particularly if you're going in with somebody else, a partner or a family member, and do not bid beyond your limit. As hard as it is, do not bid beyond your limit. The other thing I wanted to touch on was things like property inspections and so on. Do you recommend someone always do a property inspection? And if you do run out of time, would you still bid on an auction even if there is a report hasn't been done? Yeah, so building and pest is always preferred. Like if you can get a building and pest done, you would do it for the 600 bucks it costs you for something you're about to invest hundreds of thousands of dollars in, that would be a recommendation you should strongly take up. However, there are situations where, particularly for people who have missed out multiple times, they feel like, $600 each time is starting to add up and can get quite costly for them, which I understand. There is a tip I can give that could help you minimize that cost. And that is if someone else has already had 
building and pest inspection done on the property, you can call the agent and ask them to provide the details of who that was and contact the company to see if they will on-sell the report. They're an independent company. They're not wedded to any buyer or any vendor. So they can on-sell that report to you at a discounted rate. Usually it's half price because the work's already been completed. So that could help you save some money. If you can't get one done, it's it's not the absolute end of the world, but you need to be aware of the risks that you could be facing if you don't get one done. And I want to touch on off-market. It was pre-written in my question list and you touched <laughs> on it. You said 75% of your sales in 2021 were off-market. Can you describe to our listeners firstly what off-market means? And we've just got some follow-ups on that because it's a really interesting yeah. space. Certainly. So off-market's like a black market of property. It's things that you can't find unless you know the right people, those people being advocates. So basically they are properties that probably never have an intention on going online. There's very limited marketing resources. So for example, there might not be updated photos or a floor plan. There's basically no money put into these properties to get them ready for sale at all. They are just simply off the market. So the agents hold these properties most of the time and they only give them to people that they know might be able to complete a deal. Otherwise, it's giving them to everybody kind of makes no sense. Can you get a bargain on off market or is it more about just getting the property that's not available that you've been searching for for months? There's a couple of types of off-market vendors, I guess, which would help in answering your question. So yes, there are the ones who seem to be testing the market and they've sort of got this dream figure and if they got it, they would sell and you know they're not serious. And it's our job to make sure that we navigate those ones and articulate whether they are asking for the right price or they're dreaming. That's one type. And to be honest, they probably make up 10% of all off-market available. They're not a huge majority. The more common one is probably two parts. One is that it's agent driven. So let's say an agent had an auction on Smith Street on Saturday and it got a, a record result. On Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, they go door knocking the area or phoning the area and say, hey, did you see our result that we got for this auction on Saturday? Is a property just like yours? And I've now got three people who missed out on that property who all bid over X amount. If I could get X amount for your property, would you be interested in selling? And this is what people don't realize. That's like the most common way off markets occur is actually agent driven. It means the vendor doesn't have to have the outlay of any marketing costs, which can be anywhere from 10 to 15,000 just to put your property on market, you know, online and brochures and boards and all the rest of it. And it also means it's a very quick turnaround. So in some cases, the agents actually reduce their sales commission because they don't believe it warrants the full amount of commission for that period of work. So they might halve their commission in some cases. So the vendor's not at a disadvantage. So there's that element. And then the final element would be some vendors actively go to an agent and say, I want to sell off market because I want to keep this private. Maybe they're a high profile person. Maybe they just don't want people traipsing through their house every Saturday to look at the property. Thank you so much for your tips. I just wanted to ask about your business and what the next 12 months looks like. What are the plans for you and for the business? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think the biggest thing is we know there's a big buying season coming now. It's going to be quite a big year in 2022, buying property and growing the business in getting more of the right clients that we really love working with. And then alongside that, as I mentioned, looking into some coaching for 
new people entering the industry to be able to help them become a great advocate. That's probably my main focus and just consistency. I think that's what any business owner wants is some level of consistency. Real estate is very much a roller coaster. It's very seasonal. So trying to get a level of cash flow consistency would be really good. Fantastic. And if anyone wants to reach out to you, what's the easiest way they can do that? Instagram or LinkedIn or email. I'm sure if you just Google Emily Wallace, I hope I pop up as one of the, <laughs> I paid to pop up as one of the top people, but no, just uh, search my name and feel free to reach out in whatever capacity. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining our episode. I look forward to the tips online and reading and looking at your video content and really excited to have you on the show today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. This is The Bottom Line, a show designed to help Australian businesses succeed. This podcast was produced by accountancy firm Alexander Spencer. At Alexander Spencer, we've been helping business owners realise their goals since 1952. And we play a pivotal role in developing, implementing and supervising the business goals and strategies of our clients. To find out how we can help your business succeed, head to our website, alexanderspencer.com.au. To make sure you don't miss an episode of The Bottom Line, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Savan Tuna, and we'll be back next episode with more tips to help you transform your business. And that's The Bottom Line.